0: So, Romans, um, I was trying to find the direct quote and I couldn't find it but I've read and you always want to be careful when you say so and so said but I believe that it's Martin Luther that said that the Christians should be so familiar with their, the book of Romans that if they were to drop their Bible it would open to the book of Romans and uh, the, Roman, the book of Romans has much to do with Uh, why the Reformation uh, took off. It kind of led, uh, not kind of, but it led Martin Luther through all of his, uh, you know, reforming his theology, his understanding especially of the doctrine of justification. That is how someone is saved. And uh, so, yeah, the Book of Romans. Uh, Tonight, I'm thinking we'll probably only get to uh, maybe through chapter 8, I'm not in a a huge rush to get through the book of Romans. I think it's important that we understand it. So, yeah. So let's uh, go through our usual routine, and I want to do it quickly so that we can get into the body of the text and get to the details within the outline itself. So authorship, um, when it comes to uh, Paul's letters, uh, there really is no dispute uh, historically uh, or uh, contemporarily uh, in regard to his authorship, okay? It's just not something that's disputed. The the, uh, the worst critics and skeptics of all, they support Paul's authorship. Uh, there are some in the German camp, old, you know, distant now, um, who just said that nothing is anything with the Bible. And they said Jesus didn't exist, Paul didn't exist, and some Greek guy made it all up later on. And um, so when those people talk, uh, even the, the most skeptical of skeptics um, dismiss them as crazy people. So uh, Paul is the accepted author um, when we look at Romans through Philemon. Now, of course, when it comes to the authorship of Hebrews, uh, it's, it's hotly debated whether or not Paul wrote that, that, that book or not. Uh, I have my views, but whatever. But as far as Romans through Philemon goes, it's, yeah, no credible scholar challenges the veracity of that. The date, uh, he gives us some pretty good details. We're not gonna cover tons of them tonight, but we can get the date down to a pretty uh, concise place. Um, the, the, The book was obviously written before Paul had gone to Rome. Okay, because he even says in the letter in 113 and then in chapter 15, uh, 25 through 26, 22 through 24 rather, that uh, he has always wanted to go to Rome, he's expecting to go to Rome, but he's never been there. So it was before that time. And then Paul indicates in Romans 15, 25 through 26 that he wrote his letter during the time that he was traveling um, uh, around the Aegean. Uh, through Macedonia and Greece, collecting uh, money for the poor church in Jerusalem. So he says, it it, it indicates that he was writing it during that that time, okay? And that corresponds with Acts chapter 20, verse one through three. But then uh, in the final chapter of Romans, Paul mentions people by name uh, that were in his company, okay? Uh, Who actually were residents of Corinth, even some uh, dignitaries there in Corinth, and those people are not mentioned in the manifest uh, with Paul when he leaves to Jerusalem. Okay? Uh, that's Acts uh, 20, verse 4. So, uh, in fact, one of them is Paul's host. Uh, so he was living in uh, a man's house, and I just lost his name, Gaius, something. But he was living in the man's house, and that's where the church had, would meet on, uh, on Sundays. So, um, so it tells us that he wrote uh, the book of Romans in Corinth uh, during that three-month stay that he was there, okay? So, and, and those dates all correspond with somewhere between like 56 and 58 AD. So pretty accurate. Real quick, um, I have come to really appreciate the book of Romans like many others uh, because of the way that uh, Paul approaches the whole thing. Now, Paul had never been to Rome, as we've already discussed, and the, the, the Christians in Rome didn't have any, apostolic, uh, any direct apostolic um, uh, influence there. And so Paul, never being there, and not 100% certain that he would be there or get there, he wanted to give them the most systematic and detailed explanation of the gospel. And, uh, and so that's what he does, is he beca- starts at the beginning, and he moves all the way to the end. Uh, when we look at the other epistles, uh, we have to remember that Paul was, he had visited those cities, he discipled those people, and then he left, and then he wrote letters in response to conflict, to immorality, to questions that they had had. So when you look at Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians, uh, those books aren't, as systematic as the book of Romans because the discipleship process had already taken place there. He'd spent months, even years in some of those places. And so they didn't need something like the book of Romans. But the, but the Romans uh, and their, the situation, it kind of demanded it. And um, so Paul basically gave it as all. Um, so I would say that if anybody really wants to understand Uh, The christian faith in its totality you're gonna have to go to romans, okay? You're gonna have to go there So let's um, look at the outline And we'll try to fill in the details as we go. Let me give you a a broad kind of broad brush outline Uh, we have the introduction and then Mind you all of these are doctrines. So we're going to discuss the doctrine of condemnation the doctrine of justification the doctrine of sanctification, the doctrine of dispensation, and then we'll go through exhortation. I don't know if you notice that. All of the, the majority of the book is doctrinal. People say, well, I'm not into doctrine and theology. That's too bad. Uh, the foundation of your faith is based upon the fundamentals of those things. And so you can't make faith practical at all until you understand what, you know, what the faith is made of. So uh, he ends in verse 17 of chapter 1 with the introduction, and then in verse 18 he immediately goes into this doctrine of condemnation and followed by in chapter 3, verse 21, the doctrine of justification. Uh, that is the doctrine that turned uh, church history around uh, with Martin Luther was the whole uh, chapter 321 through 521. And then uh, beginning in chapter 6 to the all the way to the end of chapter 39, we have the doctrine of sanctification. Now, not in its practical sense or what we typically think of practical. I think all of theology and doctrine is practical. Uh, but this is more of the facts of sanctification. And then dispensation. There's that strange kind of uh, parentheses in, the, in, in, their, in chapter 9 through 11 And it's talking about this uh, God now pulling his attention off of Israel uh, And then putting his attention on the Gentile for salvation And then saying that in the end His focus will then uh, Will be in his presence But then his focus will then turn back onto the nation of Israel So Paul uh, believes it's very important to, to bring that into the whole context And then it's in chapter 12 that we finally get into uh, imperative after imperative, instruction, exhortation, commands, things like that uh, uh, through chapter 16. But even then, uh, there's large portions there where there's no imperatives. There's no instruction. Uh, It's just information. And so the book of Romans is actually very light uh, in what we generally think of of, in, in the context of exhortation. It's mostly doctrine and theology. So, let's look at this in more detail. Um, So, in the introduction, um, I have there the facts of the faith, um, chapter 1 through 11, and then the practice of faith, Um, just another way of showing the large... Section of doctrine. Now, how many of you guys, when you visit a church or uh, when you're thinking about uh, finding a different church, I hope that's not the case currently. But how many were interested in a the church's creed? We don't say creed a lot anymore. It comes from the Latin credo, uh, which means faith. But we talk about statements of faith today. How many of you guys? That's like the first thing that you're interested. When you look at a church. So from, from time to time, I think it's not even time to time. Three times in 13 years, people have uh, called me and said, hey, I'm thinking about coming to your church. Can I sit down and talk to you about your, your statement of faith? Uh, meeting with a guy next week and he'll be the third. So, um, and I, I think that's a, a good thing. But every good Christian creed or statement of faith declares that the Bible alone, as the very word of God, provides us with everything that pertains to faith and practice, um, you know, what it is we believe and how it is that we should behave. That the Bible alone is the source of that. Um, yeah. Which includes, it's certainly not limited to, as we'll see in the book of Romans, but uh, you know, what we should believe about God what we should believe about us, and redemption, and how God would like us to honor Him in this life that He's given us—that's that's the the uh, the basic outline of a creed, okay? And when we look at the Book of Romans, that's exactly what's laid out for us. It's exactly it. It is a it's a creed. It's it's a it's an elaborate statement of faith, okay? It's elaborate. Uh, in chapter one through eleven. Uh, Paul is just going to explain to us all of the facts all of the facts of Christianity and then in chapter 12 through 16 it's how we should live according to those facts so it moves from doctrinal th- theological to practical um, so let me see if I can drown you guys with theology um, yeah there was a point I wanted to make oh yeah for some reason, um, in chapter 6, verse 11 through 13, Paul drops about four imperatives in the Greek just out of nowhere. They show up and they're gone. So you go six chapters into the book of Romans and then suddenly Paul gives you some instruction and then it's done and you don't see another one until you get to chapter 12. Uh, but it's just a little blurb right in there and it's in the chapter that introduces the facts of sanctification. And he says, therefore, just a blurb, and then he goes right back to theology. So if you're not paying attention, you can you can miss that. So, But I think it's important. Um, so let's look at the introduction. Romans chapter 1, 1 through 17. Uh, so Paul, of course, uh, he's never been to Rome. He does know some people in Rome, as he reveals in chapter 16, but... That's tiny in comparison to the people that he doesn't know. It appears that the church in Rome is already quite large at this time. Okay, and he introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he says it's concerning the promised gospel of God. So the gospel of God is Jesus Christ. So the good news of God for humanity is Jesus Christ. It's verses one through seven. He talks about his desire to come to Rome because as an apostle. He wants to, he says, impart some spiritual gift to them. Now, that's debated uh, what he means by that. Uh, Some say only apostles could uh, distribute the gifts among God's people. Um, I think that that's incorrect. Um, I think it means that Paul wants to bring his particular gifts to Rome and then impart that to them, to bless them with his gift, especially his apostolic gift, okay? Okay. Um, and then in verse 15 through 17, we have, he tells them his reasons for writing to them, and this is where it's really at. Paul says, he says, so as much as in, it's a strange statement, so as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also, Romans chapter one, verse 15. Basically saying, I'm gonna give it all I got. I don't know if I'm going to be. I don't know if I'm going to make it to Rome, just in case I don't. I want you to have my best. Okay, I want you to have it. So, Paul, at this point, he's just going to have to be content with penning the gospel uh, before he gets an opportunity to preach it uh, in this particular way that he's doing it. So, so let's begin. The doctrine of condemnation. What a lovely. Um, title to that, isn't it? Do you remember what Jesus said in, in John 3? Uh, of course, America loves to quote John three sixteen that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, should, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But Jesus says that he did not, right after that, he says, for the Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. He who doesn't believe in the Son is condemned already. So Paul basically takes that statement and he writes two and a half chapters on it. Okay. Jesus says everybody is condemned apart from him. Every single person. Okay. Everybody in the world is condemned. So condemnation is a part of the gospel. Don't forget it. It's a part of the gospel. As I uh, uh, share the faith with children and I do the bracelets, um, you know, we have the, the black bead, which represents sin. It represents the child's condemnation with us. And then uh, I tell the children, I said, you know, there's something that makes good news really good news. It's bad news. Okay? It's bad news. And then it gives me an opportunity to talk to them about sin and how sin has separated us from God. And because we're separated from God, we need reconciliation, we need righteousness, we need forgiveness. And then it gives me an opportunity to introduce Christ into that scenario to where it's only by Christ that we can be reconciled and the sin that has separated us from God is removed. And um, so, yeah, so when it comes to the gospel, we typically reduce the gospel to uh, Christ crucified and risen uh, for our salvation. Is that typically what we think when we think, well, did you give him the gospel? Yeah, we think, well, it's Christ crucified, risen the third day for the salvation, uh, for salvation for everyone who believes. Now, that's obviously true, uh, but it's not the gospel in its totality. Uh, totality. It's, it's, the, it's foundational to the rest of the gospel and the whole gospel obviously could not be possible without that foundational truth. But it's not all of the gospel as far as Paul understood it. The gospel is, is all of the, the, the doctrines of redemption, all of them. It's all of the Christian faith. And when we talk about the New Testament, uh, the new covenant, we're talking about the gospel, okay? From beginning to end. So if you think of the book of Romans, uh, as a theological treatise I think that's accurate But really it's a gospel treatise That's what the book of Romans is okay? And so it's, it's, it's everything And that brings us here to the doctrine of condemnation And what is interesting is that In Paul's presentation of the gospel What's the first thing he brings up? The bad news There's something about us That necessitated the gospel and it begins with condemnation, okay? So gospel preaching, as we see with Jesus, as we see in the book of Acts, it always puts man's sin at the forefront. It's the problem. It's what separates man from God. Sin demonstrates why we need reconciliation with God. God is holy. Man is wicked. So in the beginning of the the outline here, as Paul gets into condemnation, uh, he begins by condemning the Gentiles. The Gentiles, Okay. Um, The Greeks or non-Jews, whatever you want to call them Um, Paul demonstrates the guilt of the Gentiles By their their intentional suppression of truth about God That's revealed in creation So they've suppressed that, he says And their willful sin against God By violating his moral standards That are revealed in the conscience So when the Gentile who knows nothing about the Bible He knows nothing about the law of God Uh, God says, I have revealed my nature to them in creation. Okay? Uh, Psalm 19 says that the the heavens declare the glory of God. We look at intelligent design. We look at the anthropic principle. We look at all of these different things. We look at DNA. uh, We find that God is there. He's powerful. He's intelligent. And uh, the, the Gentile has suppressed that information. And then also... Uh, when it comes to morality, he knows right from wrong in his conscience, but he suppresses it. When we look at um, societies without the scriptures all over the world, we see that man knows right from wrong, he knows that right is better than wrong, but he doesn't live by it. Okay. How many guys have read um, um, Mere Christianity from C.S. Lewis? A few of you? So he talks much in there about all of mankind uh, knows right from wrong. Okay? It doesn't matter what culture you come from, society, background, whatever. Um, how many guys have read um, Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair? Okay. Uh, I took some of you guys through some of that material with Greg Kochel and Francis Beckwith, and they both do a fine job of demonstrating that, that people are born and they intuitively know right from wrong. But they suppress that they, they don't do what's right When they know they ought to And so the Gentile Has suppressed all these things From creation From their conscience All that God has revealed to them And uh, theologians call this General revelation General revelation um, uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, He was a deist And he spoke often As many deists do Of nature's God Have you ever heard that? phrase before it's, it's part of the, part of the uh, deistic faith so he, while he did not believe that God intervened and interacted with man he still believed that God had instilled in man this intuitive knowledge okay and uh, so when he, when he would talk about nature's God he would and I don't know if he knew it or not but he would be discussing things uh, similar to Psalm 19 and Romans chapter 2 okay describing to us general revelation yeah and now the question that many people get into is is general revelation enough to save is there enough information in general revelation for salvation no there's not there's not and we'll see the same thing with the law there's not enough information even in special revelation as far as the law is concerned for salvation it takes something more they're only, both of them, the law and creation and conscience is enough to condemn, and it certainly does. So he moves from the condemnation of non-Jews to the condemnation of Jews. Um, yeah. So the condemnation of the Jew was something that the, or the condemnation of the Gentile was something the Jew took for granted. The Talmuds say that uh, the, the Gentiles were created to keep uh, hell burning that we were the fuel for hell. Uh, that's what the Talmud said. So they just, the, the, to them that was a no-brainer that God would judge uh, the Jew and condemn them to eternal burning. But the Jew didn't really consider his own condemnation. Okay? He didn't think about that. Uh, they thought because they were the children of Abraham that they were somehow, by virtue of their birth or pedigree, that they were, would always be within God's good graces. Okay? They felt that that was enough. But when, we, when John the Baptist shows up on the scene, and, and of course, when you look in the Old Testament prophets, uh, they would never support that. But when John the Baptist came on the scene, he said to the Pharisees, he said, and do not think to yourself that you have Abraham as your father. Don't think that. Okay? And then he says, whatever tree does not bear fruit, uh, God brings his axe to the roots, and he cuts it down, and he throws it in the fire. So John really began pushing that, okay? Really began pushing that. And, um, and of course, Jesus did as well. Nobody preached on hell uh, even close to the number of times that Jesus does in judgment. Um, so in Romans 2, 12 through uh, chapter three, verse eight, Paul demonstrates the guilt of the Jew and their guilt is based upon their knowledge of special revelation, specifically the Ten Commandments. Now that's about as special as you get because Moses wrote the rest of the law of Moses, but it says that God wrote with his own finger on the tables of stone. That's super special revelation. And they're condemned because they've sinned against the revealed law of God, both the law of Moses and uh, especially the fourth, I'm sorry, the first four of the 10 commandments. See, all of the Gentiles had everything else in the tables. They had the last six. It's written in the conscience. The first four are not. The Jews were given that, specially from God, and they violated it against, they they violated those commands as well. So, concluding in Romans uh, chapter three, verse nine through 20, he then condemns the whole world. He says they're all guilty before God. Everybody is equally in need of redemption. But then we learn elsewhere that the Jews have greater accountability in all of this because they had more Information, of course. So condemnation of Gentiles, condemnation of Jews, all are guilty before God, all are sinners. Yeah. Paul says uh, there are none righteous, no, not even one. Not even one. Okay. So there's no salvation in general revelation as the Gentiles had in creation of conscience and there's no salvation in the law as the Jews had in the law of Moses. It's not there, okay? So it doesn't matter. Something else has to be introduced. All right, doctrine of justification. Oh my goodness. I don't know that we're gonna get to chapter eight. Let's see. In, at the very beginning, when Paul transitions from chapter three, verse 20 to 321 He says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, okay? Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, okay? And then he begins to explain four things I think that you have to pay attention when we get into Paul's discussion and arguments about justification. He talks about the grounds for justification. He talks about the means of justification, the method of justification, and then the results, now, if there's any doctrine, I believe that if you're going to master a particular doctrine, it should be this one: This is the most fundamental thing to evangelical Christianity. Nothing comes close to it. You have to understand this, at least in its, at least the foundational things, the, the primary things about it, just in order to be saved. Okay? And it's, this is the doctrine that has separated. Uh, Protestantism from Catholicism, and it's Paul's all of Paul's argument has had to do with one word in, in chapter four, which Catholics refuse to use in a statement of faith. And we found that out uh, early at the, the turn of the century when evangelicals and Catholics were trying to come together and find some ground for fellowship around the fundamentals. And uh, after evangelicals and and uh, Catholics had deliberated and deliberated. They finally thought that they came to a compromise where they could, uh, you know, kind of put aside all of the, the, the strange things in Catholicism and just come down to the very fundamentals like who God is, you know, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and, and what are some other things. But then when it came to the doctrine of justification, they, they, I think they, they took a very heavy sledgehammer and they slammed them together. And then some notable theologians read the document uh, R.C. Sproul, James Montgomery Boyce, Norman Geisler, um, Gleason Archer, some men like that, notable men of faith. And they said, everything is fine until we get to that one part about the doctrine of justification. It was the word impute. The word impute, and that's the, the, uh, uh, the method of justification that God uses. And apart from it, we're, we're, we're literally condemned And so they approached the evangelicals on this issue, and the evangelicals said, "You're right." We, we were—I don't know what their excuse was—but they went back to their committee, and they presented this to the Catholic uh, scholars, and um, it ended everything. They they refused to use the word that Paul uses, and uh, and that's a problem if you can't use the word that the apostle uses. so it's either Paul or it's the Pope. It's one of the two. Well, Peter talks about justification too, so just not with the same clarity that Paul does. So yeah, so grounds, means, method, and results. Now, oftentimes, when we get into Romans chapter 3 and 4, we're going to see words like righteous, righteousness, just, justification, and justified, and In English, I think it's really easy for us to go, those mean different things, okay? They don't when Paul uses them in this context. And also, in the Greek, they're all the same family of words. So it's not like in English where we have a different word, justice, and then righteousness. And we look at at justice and righteousness as two different things, okay? We would say that one is the other, but the other is not always the other. Or we'd say that that's true about a person but isn't one just in, in a legal context only, and we separate them. The way that Paul is using them here, they all essentially mean the same thing, and that's important, okay? Uh, and they don't have a perfect English equivalent. We, uh, sometimes, we use the word acquit, and I've seen that translated, and the word is about as close as we can get in the English, uh, but it's, it's not completely, and it's not enough. To acquit is to, you know, remove legal charges against someone. It means to exonerate, uh, which we certainly are as believers, but there's more because in the place of, uh, in, of guilt is the righteousness of Christ. It's not just a statement of our innocence. It's a statement about our righteousness, okay, which is something that we'll get into. It's attributed to us. It's not something that we did. Martin Luther called it a foreign righteousness. Uh, Martin Luther compared... The, the believer to a snow-covered dunghill. The sky imputed whiteness to that dunghill. The, the beauty of the snow, the, the freshness of the snow, it can't be attributed to the dunghill, can it? It's foreign, it's, it's apart from it, okay? And so the illustration is nice because Christ takes his perfect righteousness and imputes it to us. He covers us. We'll get into that in a minute, yeah. So we don't simply have the absence of something, guilt, okay? We have something. We have the righteousness of Jesus. An acquitted person is simply not proven to be guilty, and that's nice, especially if they're not guilty. Well, we are, so it has to be a little different, okay? Whereas a justified person is actually declared to be righteous, they're not just innocent, they're righteous, okay? So in the context of redemption, it means that on the basis of the sinner's faith, God the judge declares the condemned sinner to be legally righteous in his sight and accepted by him as such. He considers the sinner to be righteous, but not just any righteousness, the exact righteousness of Christ, exactly, nothing less. There can't be any more Amen? And it's nothing less. And if you have something less to any degree than the righteousness of Christ, you are condemned. So when Jesus says, be perfect, even as the Father in heaven is perfect, guess what he means? <laughs> Absolute perfect righteousness, which you cannot acquire by yourself. It has to be attributed to you, it has to be accounted or imputed to you. Okay? God has to consider you that based upon something. So when we speak of the grounds for justification, it is on the basis of God's gracious gift alone through our faith alone. And the means of justification, of course, is the shed blood of Christ on the sinner's behalf. He was a substitute. He died in our place for our sins, okay? And the method of justification is the imputed righteousness of Christ to the sinner's account. So it's, how does God do all this? Okay, so we have a condemned sinner, and we have Christ, the righteous one, who has died on behalf of the sinner. Now, we could say that just his death takes care of the guilt of our sin, but then, as Paul will say later, in his resurrection, then we're declared righteous. So, of course, he forgives us of all of our trespasses, But then he imparts all of the righteousness of his son onto the believer. That's the method. That's what he does. And then there's the results of justification. As Paul gets into in Romans 5, uh, verse 1, there's peace, reconciliation, and eternal life. Peace, therefore, having been justified, we have peace with God. And he goes on to say that we have reconciliation and we have eternal life. We have the life of Jesus, which is fairly eternal, last time I checked. So, from Paul's argument, as you go through chapter 3, verse 21 to the end of chapter 4, uh, he makes uh, some statements that are probably quite alarming to the Jew. Um, but, gosh, I would think as a Jew, It would just be refreshing, but it's not. He says, he begins by saying justification has nothing to do with the law. Now, I was talking to Roger today that there's a, uh, among some reformers, especially covenant reform theology, is that um, it has nothing, of course, to do with our obedience. We all believe that. But they believe that Jesus obeyed the law on our behalf and then imputed his obedience to the law to us And uh, I've heard R.C. Sproul teach it in a very long sermon. Uh, I've heard uh, Derek Thomas preach it, James White preach it. And uh, to date, I've never seen a verse in all of Scripture that supports their view. Uh, So they call it the the doctrine of positive righteousness. There's passive righteousness, which is attributed to us through his death, but then there's positive righteousness uh, that is imputed to us from his obedience to the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law of Moses. And so they say that to be forgiven and to be placed in a state of innocence is not enough. And so because the law of God still stands, which it does not, according to the new covenant, uh, Jesus had to obey that for us. Now it's true that Jesus obeyed all of the law, but nowhere in the New Testament does it say it was as a substitute for us or vicarious so that he could then impute that kind of obedience to us. It's a very interesting Um, kind of uh, reasoning from covenant theology and um, like I told Roger they are seeing things literally seeing things I mean it's not there Uh, you can fight for it all you want but there's just no there's no text what's that Mm -hmm. typically Uh, those that uh, push that doctrine are covenant uh, reformed theology yeah so, uh, Presbyterians typically is where you find uh, that theology but a lot of Reformed Baptists are the same as well So It makes sense in the context of covenant theology uh, but there's just no New Testament statement and, there's, and, and covenant theology has tons of things like that uh, like saying that baptism is, has replaced circumcision as the sign of the covenant. And they have all kinds of theology to base that upon. And then the same thing with like infant baptism, Um, because Jews circumcise their babies, their male children at eight days old, you should also baptize your babies because baptism replaces circumcision. And if you circumcise at eight days, you should baptize at eight days. Uh, if if, If it means to partake of the covenant, as being born into the family, then you should also um, give your babies communion. And it all comes out of covenant theology. Not, we're not taught that in the New Testament, but it's a logical uh, kind of inference because everything carries over just in a new way. So it's very interesting. Um, I'm not comfortable with any of it. If I don't hear the apostles see him teaching it or, or giving an example of it, I don't touch it. So... Right. makes him the suitable substitute on the promise. so that's it's it's our breaking the law that makes mm-hmm. us deserving of death. Yeah. And it's his keeping of the law that makes him uh he was suitable in advance. well Yeah. Sure, but it but in but in practice it was keeping the law. I mean if he had broken the law yeah. he wouldn't have been right he would, yeah he would have been so yeah. well. keeping law just proved that he was righteous. Yeah. That he was pure, that he was holy. Yeah. And and that's true. He came to fulfill the law. We all believe that, but did he keep the law so that he could impute that obedience to us? That's the debate. So so the debate is whether or not his righteousness comes from him keeping the law or the law comes from his righteousness. I'm saying that his law is indigenous to himself, being the son of God. Yeah, yeah, and we've already said that um, this righteousness is apart from the law. Um, And then in Romans chapter 4 verse, I'll take you there real quick. There's many arguments against it. Um, There's many arguments against it just because, uh, for one, their argument isn't stated. But if you listen to uh, Paul's line of reasoning here... um, He says, just as David also describes, this is chapter four, verse six, the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. So he's saying, David is, it said in the Old Testament that God will impute righteousness, righteousness apart from works. And he says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin He's saying that the, all of the righteousness that a man needs uh, is in the sins being covered, sins being forgiven, and God not holding his sins against him. He says nothing about uh, an imputed sort of law-keeping. And uh, being forgiven is enough. And the source of Jesus' righteousness is uh, sufficient within himself without his uh, obedience to the law I could go through a ton of arguments. Yeah. Uh, Anyway. Let's try to move on a little bit here. I lost my place there. So uh, he he begins there. Uh, Justification has nothing to do with the law. Uh, He says it's purely on the basis of faith. That's 322. Has nothing to do with race or ethnicity. Just as all are condemned... All can be saved through Christ, um, which is shocking to the Jew. Um, You remember when Peter went to Cornelius' house and then he reported back to the the Jews what had happened and they were like, what? And then Paul, when he was um, arrested in Jerusalem and he spoke to the crowd and he gave all of his testimony and then he says, and God told me to go to the Gentiles and they said, away with this man, he's not fit to live. Okay, it's extremely racist. Um, It's not on the basis of any works of any kind, 327, but it's imputed to the sinner through faith only, and that's chapter 4, verse 1 through 25. And then in chapter 5, chapter 5 is a really important discussion, but to break it down uh, in a statement, um, it's through faith in Christ that we lose our identity with Adam's transgression and gain our identification with Christ's righteousness. Okay, so chapter five was a, is, is a whole thing in itself. It's very interesting. So let me read this concluding remarks of Paul. He says, concluding that righteousness shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead who was delivered up, that is, on the cross because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So for the believer, justification is always in the past. It's something that happened in the past. And because of that, we always have peace with God and we have permanent reconciliation with him. That's the doctrine of justification in a nutshell. And I'm out of time. Sanctification's next, so um, sorry, I didn't get further. So if you have any questions about anything I've said, uh, you can email me, um, you can feed me. Uh, however, you want to get your questions to me is fine. So why don't you stand up and we'll pray? Well, Father, we love you and we thank you, Lord, that your grace truly is amazing. That we were lost in our sins and trespasses, and Christ rescued us. He saved us, and he reconciled us, forgiving us of all sins and putting us in a right relationship with you. And, uh, so Lord, we thank you. We thank you, as we'll talk about next week is that now that you've saved us, you're sanctifying us, you're making us more like you. And, uh, and Lord, that is the peculiar attention that we should be giving to as Christians, is um, displaying your character in our lives. And uh, so yeah, Lord, I thank you for my f- church family. Pray that you would bless them this week, that you encourage their hearts. And you just love on them. So Lord, thank you in Jesus' name, amen.